Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. got Vikram from Quantlayer, and thanks for listening to our 27th podcast. On this episode, Faison and I discuss comments from the CFTC about developer responsibilities and liabilities. The CFTC posits that there are a few primary groups of users of blockchain networks. One, core developers of the underlying software. Two, developers of smart contracts on top of the underlying blockchain. Three, miners who validate transactions. And four, users who transact with the chain's smart contracts. Their focus is primarily around two, or the developers of smart contracts, and what responsibilities those developers have when writing contracts that fall in the jurisdiction of the CFTC. Is a smart contract developer who writes options contracts or futures contracts or prediction market contracts, those that the CFTC would call financial products, liable for the code they write? This was a really interesting conversation because it touched on notions of developer responsibilities and law. As the world moves more and more in the direction of software, how do we ensure code that's being written isn't bad? If you enjoy our podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes. It would help us out a ton. Hope you enjoy this one. Thanks. Hey, everyone. You've got Quantlayer here. Vikram speaking. I'm joined by Fizan, also known as The Wizard. What's going on, Fizan? Not much. So a couple months back, Brian Quintens of the CFTC, that's the Commodities Futures and Trading Commission, gave a speech at a technology event. And the interesting thing about this is CFTC has been pretty heavily investing time in understanding the crypto space. So the talk revolved around the role of the CFTC and smart contracts. So I thought it would be pretty interesting to go through this because we always talk about like developer responsibility and this is not even necessarily in the context of uh, crypto. Actually, most it has not usually been in the context of crypto. It's just more obvious in the context of crypto that developers have may or may not have particular responsibilities associated with the code they've written. So a lot of times we see we see bad code written and we think, okay, well, if there was like a law around writing good code, which is, you know, that would be a topic for like a totally different discussion. But say there was a law around good code, right, and bad code. Um, it's very clear that there could be a case made that when we see bad code, there needs to be like some kind of consequences for the people that have written that bad code. Because the consequences of bad code are not necessarily just bugs, but you know, in the context of crypto, it could be you know, users losing money, for example. So that's one example. And then the CFTC, what, and we'll go through this actual speech because it's super interesting. On the CFTC side, what they're saying is that if there's smart contracts that are written in their sort of their ballgame, they have rights associated with that software developers who have written smart contracts on markets that typically that the CFTC would over oversee, you know, they they're fiduciaries or that they have actually legal responsibilities around that. So interesting. Yeah, I thought it was pretty interesting. So we'll link to the show notes in the speech, but um, you know, I'll read a few parts here. So they start off with he starts off with. A particular area of interest to me is how regulators apply existing legal paradigms to novel technologies, not contemplated when those laws were adopted. In the past, the CFTC has supervised the derivatives markets through the registration of market intermediaries. For example, much of the CFTC's regulatory structure for promoting market integrity and protecting customers revolves around the regulation of exchanges, swap dealers, future commission merchants, clearinghouses, and fund managers. However, the supervisory framework is not applicable in the disintermediated world of blockchain, which raises several complex legal and policy issues. In the context of decentralized blockchains like Ethereum, 
on top of which multiple applications can run autonomously via smart contracts, it requires identifying who is responsible for ensuring that the activity on the blockchain complies with the law. So this is interesting because, I mean, for a lot of the things that were mentioned, like exchanges and fund managers, you can draw a direct parallel in the crypto space because you have similar like centralized parties. But when you start having stuff like decentralized exchanges, it, it definitely breaks down and like it's, it's new ground. Yeah. And I imagine they, at least this, they say publicly that they want to, I mean, they, they I, I do believe it. It's not, I don't think it's just a lip service, but they have this group, the Lab CFTC, who goes out and meets with founders and they're trying to understand the space better. So I think they do are willing to work in some kind of new paradigm, but in cases that are very obvious to them, like if someone is writing a smart contract that's a derivative, they can't just like let that, let it go, right? Yeah. And say that, oh, it's just, it's part of like experimentation or whatever. I think, I think that's like the if, point he's kind of good across. Like if you have an exchange or just because you're doing something via smart contract that otherwise would be under their jurisdiction doesn't mean it leaves their jurisdiction. Right. So it was a pretty, pretty good speech. The uh, he, he gets into who the main groups of participants in these decentralized blockchains are. So his question is identifying who is responsible, right? So then he lays out who are the actual participants, and then we can like go through those as well. So he says, first, there's a group of core developers who write the foundational open source software underlying the public blockchain. Typically, these core developers do not play an active role in managing the blockchain. However, they do tend to retain some responsibility for its ongoing operability. For example, in the past, core developers of some chains have developed software updates to address bugs in the code or put forth solutions to address events such as hackings that may threaten the viability of the chain. Question to you. So he put core developers in quotes. Yeah. What do you think about that? Uh, I didn't read into that too much. I just thought that they were, you know, referencing the terminology that you tend to use for like, say the Bitcoin core team or the Ethereum core team. Okay. So it's just was referring to like those groups of individuals. This one is interesting because if you were on the Bitcoin core team and I go and write some sort of second layer exchange that primarily, like it does something very illegal, is the implication that you know, if you're on the core team, you have some association or liability based on how it's used? Or do you have some sort of liability in the, the work you've done being sound? So let's say I'm not doing anything illegal, but some bug that you introduce causes me to lose money. What are they saying here? Right. That's a good point. Because my initial read of this was that they were saying, if you're a core developer of Ethereum, uh, because they talk about Ethereum in this one, you tend to retain some responsibility. That's that's the actual wording for its ongoing mm. operability. So you fix bugs and do that kind of thing. As we read through this, we'll see that he actually shies away a bit from this group as being having a lot of responsibility. But the language itself, it's I don't I don't know. It doesn't leave that doesn't you know naturally uh, the case. Like we've seen, you know, tons of chains with with underlying problems and underlying bugs that have caused, you know, 51% attacks um, or decisions made that have caused like the ability to have 51% attacks and things like that. Yeah. And I, this one is tricky because you're essentially, you know, these are the authors of the underlying protocol. And so I, I would argue that their responsibility is more limited unless they're being malicious somehow. But I guess we can come back to that. Yep. And also could have to do with the, specifically with respect to the CFTC, like mm. what is their purview? You know, maybe their purview is too broad if they actually look at the core development team as well, as opposed to like smart contracts that manage like derivatives or prediction markets or whatever. Yeah. Okay, second, you have users. So we talked about the core developers first, and now you have users. For example, individuals who own tr- cryptocurrency like Bitcoin or Ether and use the blockchain to transact. Next, in order to validate those transactions, miners... And their description is that they bundle groups of transactions into blocks and solve a complex mathematical problem to arrive at a unique solution through a process called hashing. 
If a majority of the nodes on the chain confirm the miner solution, then the block is validated and added to the chain. Some blockchain networks like Ethereum allow smart contracts to be integrated into the chain. In brief, a smart contract is a computer code containing all terms of the contract and is self-enforcing, meaning the software can execute the terms of the contract without additional input from the parties. Once the smart contract is formed on the Ethereum network, it operates without further intervention. Some software developers have written code that allows users to create specific types of smart contracts that can be deployed on the blockchain. So the main group of participants are basically the core developers of the blockchain software, the developers of smart contract applications, miners that validate transactions, and the users who transact in and execute smart contracts on the chain. And then he gets into uh, different kinds of applications of smart contracts. This was this was interesting to read because it was uh, you know like a government entity talking about real world applications of smart contracts, and it gives kind of like a light. Uh, example and then like, uh, you know, the kind of example that the CFTC would care about. So smart contracts are, this is what he says, smart contracts are easily customized and almost limitless in their applicability. For example, a protocol could create smart contracts for flight insurance. If you were worried about a flight being late, you could check how much it would cost to buy insurance. And if you thought the price was reasonable, you could purchase the contract with cryptocurrency. Then if your flight was late, the contract by consulting public flight records would automatically compensate you for the delay. Smart contracts could also be used to facilitate the sharing economy by enabling users to rent houses, cars, and other property. I like, that's a particularly good example that they used because, you know, it handles like insurance is a good use of smart contracts, but also they don't like open up a whole bunch of questions about like, having a good Oracle, like flight public records is a pretty good trigger to use. Yep. Cause presumably I guess with, there's no real Oracle necessity there. If we trust the, you know, the prices from the airlines, I guess. Right. And the public, the actual flight records too. Yep. And flight records. And then he gets into the smart contracts that they care about more. So he says other protocols could create smart contracts that more, closely resemble traditional financial products. For example, individuals who believe they have developed predictive data about future financial events, like a stock's performance, could offer their data for purchase via smart contracts. Depending on the facts and circumstances, this activity could present regulatory issues. It could look like providing investment advice or, given the anonymity of the predictions, could be used nefariously to facilitate insider trading. Other protocols could allow individuals to create their own smart contracts, predicting future events more broadly. Essentially, these contracts would allow individuals to bet on the outcome of future events, like sporting events or elections using digital currency. If your prediction is right, the contract automatically pays you the winnings. Again, depending on the facts and circumstances, this could look like what the CFTC calls a prediction market, where individuals use so-called event contracts, binary options, or other derivative contracts to bet on the occurrence or outcome of future events. In the past, CFTC has generally prohibited prediction markets as contrary to public interest, only permitting them in limited circumstances when it has found that they operate on a small-scale, nonprofit basis and serve academic purposes. So this second group, I mean, we talked about the, the airlines contracts, like the, uh, the sharing economy stuff. And then the second group, which very much seem like derivatives and definitely financial product type of smart contracts, these are probably the kinds of things that they would have under their purview. So you're saying they wouldn't approve of uh, Satoshi Dice? <laughs> <laughs> All those gambling apps that had popped up? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point because conceivably, especially with things like prediction markets, I mean, you can build a trustless system where, you know, I can interact without worry that the other party is is not going to pay me out, even if I'm doing something illegal. So right. you could conceivably see a growth in these markets because it's easier to participate without risk of like loss. Yep. So it continues, as we noted 
There are innumerable types of smart contracts on the blockchain, many of which operate entirely outside the CFTC's jurisdiction. But what steps should the CFTC take if it learns of a smart contract protocol that may implicate its regulation? Or in other words, like who deals with the consequences? Like what are the what happens in that case? So with respect to the main group of participants, Faison, I think you, you had some additional thoughts there. Yeah. So yeah, this is going back to the we had talked about the core developers, the developers of smart contracts, miners, and users, and sort of what their levels of liability are. So, you know, users won't really get into it. it, I think it's more cut and dry. If you're doing something illegal, then the appropriate agency can come after you. The smart contract authors, I think, is also, I would argue, a little more obvious in the sense that if I write a smart contract for some sort of prediction market that would otherwise be illegal if I were just writing it as, you know, like a regular app, then... My liability seems relatively straightforward. The case of the core developers we had mentioned, like you're essentially a protocol author. And I know there was that line about, you know, having some some responsibility, but that's almost like if I if I invented like the internet, um, let's say I'm Al Gore, I've invented the internet, and you go and do something that causes you to lose money, should I, you know, what level of liability do I hold? So I think that that one is the most difficult to address. Yep. And then the miners is an interesting one because essentially what you're doing when you're mining by, you know, assuming you're you're just grabbing transactions using some algorithm as like the ones with the highest payout or, you know, a relatively evenly distributed and random process based on like whatever just gets you the most economic reward, mm-hmm. you are essentially endorsing any activity on the blockchain just based on its financial merits. So if the most economical smart contracts are doing something very illegal, you know, everyone that's a miner is a participant in like in endorsing those transactions. You're you're essentially the payment processor. You know, it's like if Visa accepted payments for a company that just like sold heroin on the internet, I'm pretty sure there would be some level of liability. Yep. And so what is the parallel here? Because it's not really the same, but you, you can see the case that they could make that by mining, you are participating in the like in, in endorsement of, of the transactions that you put in your blocks. Right. And kind of related topic was we saw a U.S. government agency blacklist a couple, like two Bitcoin addresses that were owned by, I think, two Iranians. Yeah. So it's along those lines, like what do the miners do in that case? Like if they see transactions associated with those addresses? Yeah, because I think on the theoretical side, one of like the core sort of, you know, when people discuss like any algorithm or any blockchain-based economy, they just look at like the economic rewards of of mining and what the dynamics are. But if you add some regulation in, into that around, well, you can't, you know, you have to check and make sure that the transactions that you're endorsing are not illegal. It, it you know, it raises a lot of questions for what you have to do to actually be a miner. And say you're just one ten thousandth of a mining pool, and that mining pool endorses a bunch of you know illegal transactions, and the CFTC comes after them. What's your liability there? Right. So I think the the mining itself is where a lot of the tough questions exist because you've essentially distributed the liability across every participant in the system. Yep. You know, this, them not focusing on mining might just be not just, I mean, it's still a big, big deal. Uh, but it might be a, like, it doesn't necessarily fall under their purview. Like they are mostly interested in financial products. Maybe that would fall under the, like the DOJ or the SEC or some other group. Like, okay. If you're, say you're validating a bunch of, these blacklisted addresses. It was kind of funny, yeah. by the way, like the, the the government had posted those addresses. And then you, if you went and looked at them, you saw like some people had sent, you know, like 25 cents, 30 <laughs> cents to those addresses. Of course. Of course. Uh, there's, there's always going to be trolling at that level. Maybe those just fit somewhere else. So the, the rest of the talk is basically on, on the smart contract side. And I think that they want to kind of put their, their yeah. foot in that and- arena. And that's the lowest hanging fruit because those are the most, I mean, if you're, if, if a transaction involves something shady, 
the clearly most liable party is probably the smart contract author because you could argue miners are one step removed and the protocol authors are even another uh, step removed yep. from direct responsibility. Right. So it makes sense for them to go after that first. Yeah. So there's a section in there uh, that he, in his talk called Applying Old Law to New Products. And so he says here, in my view, with respect to any smart contract protocol, the first step in the analysis is defining the basic nature of the contract. Is a contract for the sale or rental agreement? Or does it have essential characteristics of a swap, feature, or option? If so, is the product accessible by U.S. persons? If the contract is a product within the CFTC's jurisdiction, then regardless of whether it is executed via written ISDA confirmation or software code, it's subject to CFTC regulation. I'm not sure what ISDA confirmation is exactly. If hmm. the smart contract is within the CFTC's jurisdiction, then the next question becomes, is the method by which it's being transacted on the blockchain compliant with CFTC regulations? If the contract is a swap, is it being offered to retail participants? Is it a product that must be traded on an exchange? Does the protocol itself perform exchange-like functions by facilitating trading, thereby potentially implicating registration requirements? These are all open questions the CFTC must consider and resolve as smart contracts proliferate and perhaps become a common feature of our financial market. Interesting. So it seems like they're they're really honing down on what they want to go after first, and it's it's the same things that they're doing in the traditional financial markets. Yeah, it seems like uh, s smart contracts that look like traditional financial products. I, I thought the interesting thing was towards the end of this, where he says that they may perhaps become a common uh, smart contracts may become a common feature of our financial market. So it's really, you know, from their perspective, they probably want to get on this really quickly before, because uh, it could it could just get totally out of control. Yeah. And in some ways, like, maybe some of it has. Because you see, you hear about, like, I'll give an example, right? The, and it's not something we've looked at super closely, but, you know, just my, my spidey sense around this is starting to tingle. But, like the maker die relationship with ether a lot of people are using make the maker protocol basically you can send maker your ether write a cdp which is this like contract that lets you get a stable coin called die back and you can do whatever you want but a lot of people end up using that die to buy more ether so i wonder like how the cftc would view that particular market Basically, what you're doing, it's it's margin trading, right? Yeah. You're sending ETH to a smart contract. You're getting DAI back. And then you're using that DAI uh, for, I guess, anything. Like, you could use it to buy stuff, right? Not not necessarily more Ether. But right. you are, it is being used in, like, a margin lending type of role. So I wonder, uh, like, I wonder what the, how, how things play out there. Hmm. That's an interesting one. So then he gets into this thing called like this general analytical framework that he's been thinking about. So uh, I'll read this part because it's interesting. Let's apply the general analytical framework I've described above to our earlier example of the prediction market. In this hypothetical, after performing a facts and circumstances analysis, the CFTC has determined that the smart contracts executed on the blockchain are binary options, which are within the CFTC's jurisdiction. Binary options are the type of option whose payoff is either a fixed amount or zero. For example, there could be a binary option that pays $100 if the price of gold is above $1,200 per ounce on a specified date and zero otherwise. Moreover, the contracts in our scenario likely qualify as event contracts that are based upon the occurrence or non-occurrence of an event as opposed to the price of a commodity. Event contracts have a unique spot in CFTC jurisprudence because of the public policy concerns they raise. For example, event contracts based upon war, terrorism, assassination, or other similar incidents may be contrary to the public interest, in which case the CFTC can prohibit an exchange from offering the contract. Because of these concerns, as noted above, the CFTC has historically only authorized off-exchange trading in event contracts in limited circumstances 
on specific types of events for academic purposes and with strict <laughs> limits on the amount retail customers can invest. Therefore, the particular fact pattern described above, event contracts executed in a potentially for-profit manner between retail customers on any conceivable event for any sum of money, raises multiple CFTC regulatory <laughs> concerns. That's pretty cut and dry. Yeah, it's cut and dry. <laughs> um, it, you know, it fits right into kind of Augur's wheelhouse, which is a protocol built on Ethereum for writing these prediction market contracts. I saw an announcement recently. I forgot the name of the team, but there's a there's another protocol that's being launched like in the next couple of weeks that is supposed to be like a better UX, a better UI, a better uh, just overall experience for writing prediction markets. It's also built not on Ethereum directly, but on top of Augur itself. So this is super interesting because like what happens when we have... Okay, so say like, this is made up, but say like Binance starts offering... Uh, prediction market binary event contracts. You know, maybe the CFTC can work with like the Hong Kong uh, version of CFTC to prevent that. But to your point earlier about decentralized exchanges, maybe decentralized exchanges are more interesting in the context of this kind of stuff. Yeah, like, like how, how, do you, how do you regulate or enforce like non-centralized entity? Right. Like I think there's that's just a fundamental problem that needs to be that all these government agencies will be looking to figure out how to solve, and I imagine that they'll just go after the participants because that's easier. Right. By participants, you mean like the buyers of the contracts, or like the writers, or mm -hmm. who? okay. Like if if you're trading on a decentralized, like I think that it, if they want to actually be able to control some sort of activity. They can't really do anything to a decentralized exchange by its nature. The you know the most centralized part of it is the actual users, so they can come after you. Yep. So then he continues, but who should be held for this activity? One could look at the core developers of the underlying blockchain code. Without this foundational code, the smart contracts could never be executed. However, these core developers had no involvement in the development of the smart contract code. They invented a code upon which any number of applications can run, and in my view, it seems unreasonable to them, uh, unreasonable to hold them accountable for every subsequent application that uses their underlying technology without further evidence of knowledge or intent. They may not even be aware that this type of smart contract has been deployed. Similarly, miners and general users of the blockchain are not in a position to know and assess the legality of each particular application on the blockchain. The anonymous really? decentralized nature of the chain makes it difficult or even impossible for miners and users to monitor the activity of other miners and users. Interesting. So I guess this is a little surprising uh, compared to what we were talking about earlier. Yeah, this is, I, you know, I would say like a very lenient <laughs> stance they've taken. Yeah. I, that's, you know, that's a pretty pro, like pro blockchain position, I would say. Yeah. Or pro smart contract position. So like going back to that a little bit. So... You know, say the U.S. has this blacklist and, you know, in five years, in 10 years, it's, it's still going to be like a millions of addresses. Yeah. Right. Do you think they could have some kind of enforcement of like U.S.-based miners need to like you have a U.S. government entity, write a, a patch to the Bitcoin mining software and these miners based in the U.S. have to use uh, like that patch on top of the core protocol? Uh, I mean, I don't think they would write a patch. I think they would provide a spec and then you have to implement it. Okay. And then you would have right. to like block those addresses. Yeah like, yeah. like the spec would say that you can't, you know, there's this, like maybe it's a hard code list of addresses. Maybe there's certain logic for, you know, if transactions look like this, then they need to be flagged somehow and like forwarded to the SEC or, you know what I mean? So I see it being more of a spec that it's the miner's responsibility to, implement into their code base and keep up with. Yep. Uh, it, it's essentially compliance. Right. So as a miner or the, the author of a mining code that's run on many, many mining pools, um, you'd essentially have a compliance department that makes sure that your code is compliant with the latest like mining regulations put forth by whatever agency. That's how I see it. Can pools reject particular miners by like IP address, for example? Like, would these, some of these pools just like reject American miners if, if it becomes um, 
You know, I, this just brings up like so many future yeah. concerns. I understand better like why a lot of the Bitcoin community wants to focus a lot more on like fungibility and yeah. uh, right because this is this gets starts getting pretty crazy. Yeah, it gets complicated quickly. Like depend if if you're a centralized pool or if you're one of those pools that requires you to like create a login, then it's very easy for them to they can essentially do their own KYC. Right. If it's again, if it's a fully decentralized system, then why would it care? Yep. So, you know, assuming so, you know, assuming that they can't go after decentralized pools or decentralized exchanges. And it sounds like they want to be reasonable in the sense that like if you know you you join a mining pool and it just so happens that the pool like processed a transaction that like sent money to a sanctioned country, like you know, the thousand like people at home that were mining with their one GPU are not like suddenly liable for some sort of like sending money to North yep. Korea. Right. Um so, so which is I think what they're they're like they're basically saying like we don't want to end up in that situation uh, where we're like we're going after people for that reason. But if you're the author of the mining code, so, you know, not like the low level protocol, because they're basically saying like the core developers are essentially writing a protocol or like a, a general purpose system and they can't be responsible for all the specific uses of that system. Yep. So that's very reasonable. But I think that when you get into the authors of obviously the smart contracts, but especially even looking at the authors of, say, a specific mining algorithm, they can probably go after that a little bit. Because that's still going to be an identifiable group of people. So if I write a mining algorithm that, say, doesn't make sure to avoid dealing with transactions from a public blacklist of addresses, then you could argue that I could have some liability there. The analogy that I was thinking of was, I don't, you know, do you remember like when like sites like mega upload, like the whole Kim.com yeah. drama. Mm-hmm. So you'd have these sites that were basically like, we just let users upload whatever. And we're just like a, you know, a provider of storage. And essentially people used it to share uh, pirated material. And, you know, these were centralized distributors of pirated material. And so obviously like no one would sue like the author of the protocol that allowed like the download or upload to happen, that would be unreasonable. Mm-hmm. And you could very clearly go after whoever actually pirated the material. But if you're just hosting whatever people send you, but knowledgeable that a good chunk of it will be illegal, yep. like what's your level of liability? And I think that's where the miners at, not at like an individual person level, but as like maybe a, a whole mining pool or the author of a like widely used uh, mining pr- protocol, something like that, you you can end up in that gray area. Yep. So uh, he continues with specifically on on this point about smart contract code. So that leaves us with the developers of the smart contract code that underlies these event contracts, as well as the individual users who then use that code to create and wager on their own event contracts. The developers of the code claimed that they merely created the protocol and therefore have no control over whether and how users choose to use it once it's part of the public domain, that they would place the liability on the individual users who are the actual creators and counterparties of the event contracts. So here's the doozy. In my view, this is CFTC's view, his view, Mm -hmm. this analysis misses the mark. Instead, I think the appropriate question is whether these code developers could reasonably foresee at the time they created the code that would, it would likely be used by U.S. persons in a manner violative of CFTC regulations. Oh, wow. <laughs> in this particular hypothetical, the code was specifically designed to enable the precise type of activity regulated by the CFTC, and no effort was made to preclude its availability to U.S. persons. Under these facts, I think a strong case could be made that the code developers aided and abetted violations of CFTC regulations. As such, the CFTC could prosecute those individuals for wrongdoing. And then he gives a little example. Uh, uh, think of someone asking you to borrow the keys to your car because they want to rob a bank. If you let them borrow your car, it would be reasonable for the government to hold you partially responsible for the ensuing criminal activity. However, it would be unreasonable for the government to prosecute the car manufacturer. I would add a, a, you know, a third example to that, which is 
what if, you know, let's say you have the air, you know, Turo, which is like Airbnb for car rentals and like 3% of them gets used for robbing banks and you put your car on Turo, where does that fall? Because it's one thing if you just say, I'm going to rob a bank and I give you my car keys. Right. Did you say 3%? But, yeah. I'm just using that as yeah. an example. Like it's no, a it's, meaningful, that's a, it's a meaningful amount, but in yeah. general, people are using it for legitimate activity. Right. Which is, a, you know, a lot of how... Like the, I, I think that's more reflective of what's what's going on in a lot of these exchanges and with these transactions. Yep. I remember when this first came out, it was pretty, uh, like it lasted, you know how tw- crypto Twitter is like, there's a day of like everyone screaming at each yeah. other about a topic. So this is one of those topics. And I think the, the language that got snapshotted was that this, the code developers could get basically a bit aided and abetted violations of these regulations. So yeah, that probably stirred up a lot of controversy yeah did you see the other thing that i saw recently uh gemini put out a full page ad in the new york times um and they've also been putting ads around new york on like uh, bus stops and stuff basically uh i think it reads something like revolution needs regulation right (laughs) or something like that yeah they're basically saying like we are compliant with all of this stuff and like that's a good thing yep but that's been a pretty controversial statement. Yeah, it has. But it also shows like how a company like Gemini kind of has to do something like that to remain in like, yeah, have a good image with, because I think a lot of Americans just think that this is just a, it's just a a space just associated with fraud or it's weird. Like, yeah. And, and again, they're much more focused. Like they know their market. They're based in New York. They probably want to go after a lot of professional and institutional investors who are going to care about this stuff. And so it's probably beneficial for them to just pick a side yep. and take a strong stance. So what's your initial take with respect to these smart contract developers? Like if you wrote uh, code that you know is going to get used to write uh, derivatives, let's say on a prediction market. And then you say, oh, I just wrote the code. I didn't really, like, I didn't write the contract, right? Yeah. Because there's two things. Like, one, I'm going to assume that a lot of these smart contract developers don't know what what falls under the purview of CFTC. Or what the CFTC is. Yeah, or what the CFTC is. But as humans, and I think there's an aspect of, like, just human psychology where uh, you're looking for arbitrage in like some kind of situation. So I can see the code developer saying like, oh, we should be able to do this because it's a, it, it would be a simple way to to add like liquidity for in this space or it would be a simple way to like, you know, the government's banned like different kinds of prediction markets before. So, you know, why don't we decentralize this? And, you know, that makes sense. Uh, or in the case yeah. of like Maker that we gave earlier, oh, we can very easily, oh, I want to be able to use my, I'm not even thinking about doing anything illegal. I want to be able to use my ether without selling it. Like I want to be able to borrow on it. I don't want to use a third party to do it. Like I don't want to, there's a few firms like uh, a few kind of lending firms that let you um, lock up Bitcoin and ether that you can borrow on. I don't want to do that because I'm full all into decentralization. So I want to write my own contract or am I write my own protocol that lets me do that or lets other people do that. And then we'll be able to, you know, borrow instead of selling our ether, we can and then pay taxes on that. We can just lock up our ether, borrow on it, and then use the borrowings for whatever we want. So right. that case to me is not like it doesn't seem criminal. But right. if they're writing uh basically like a margin loan system that probably fits under the purview of like, I don't know if the C, I don't know if it's a CFTC, but it's probably something. Or even at the state level or like wherever they're doing. I don't know. It's very it's a very a lot of this is untrodden territory. Yeah. So I don't know. What do you think? I'm not sure, I guess. Uh, you know, my <laughs> main thought was <laughs> was just uh, around that, the compliance stuff where essentially, you know, compliant, like there will be a spec for contract writing and mining that you would have to conform to to make sure you're not participating in illegal activities. Um, I think that works for high level stuff like mining. Uh, For actual smart contracts, it's trickier because I don't think the CFTC can think up every way a smart contract can be used to do what is 
like to you know to create some sort of proxy for like an existing financial instrument right and so it's hard to regulate it ahead of time so from the developer's perspective it's it, first of all if you if you are taking money from people like buying and selling stuff from people transferring money like there's some reasonable expectation of you doing your diligence on whether what you're doing is legal or not like if you actually spin up an exchange and you're handling people's money and you've just not like looked into it, like they probably should be able to, you know, investigate you. Yep. The more tricky case is if you do something novel that it seems like seems reasonable and it turns out that it's not like, I don't, I don't have a good answer to that. Like ideally the CFTC would be able to put something out so that you would know ahead of time, like what's, you know, what you're doing is fine, but I don't know that that's actually possible. It's almost reminds me of like when people, you know, in 20, was it 2015, 14, when people are trying to figure out how am I going to pay taxes on, uh, capital gains for Bitcoin, like before the IRS had put out any guidance. Yep. So I feel like we're in that, in that phase for a lot of this smart contract stuff. Yeah. There's no way they're going to be able to figure out every possible scenario of, yeah, uh, how something is written in the particular case of like working with maker to borrow and then, you know, create die that you use for other stuff. I would say that's pretty, I don't know. It's, it's yeah, that, like, it's like novel in terms of, okay, this hasn't been for but it's not novel. in as far as like a, uh, securitized loan, like that exists, it's exists forever. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think in that case, it's reasonable to expect that if you're like, if you spin up some sort of, thing that does that you should be aware that it is a securitized loan and make sure that you're you know wherever you are you're doing so legally right. i think th that case is reasonable it's interesting that they essentially are not that interested in going after you know core developers or uh miners i thought there would be more more liability for the miners but i, I guess it makes sense for them to, to focus on the uh so I think the issue there is that maybe mining falls under like money transmission. I don't know. Like I just remember reading that somewhere and maybe that is more along the lines of what like FinCEN deals with. I think they're trying to just be as focused as possible. Like who's writing smart contract code for like derivatives and binary options and futures and things like that. Yeah. Like let's be able to go yeah. after them. If, they, if they're too broad, they, you know, maybe like mining might not fit under what they're like prerogative is yeah so i think that's a more clear-cut case of you wrote something for which there is like precedent and so they're going to come after you yep. similarly if you're doing something openly malicious i think that there's a clear-cut case what do you think about like either negligence or incompetence like let's say i some like i spin up some sort of a exchange a lot of people are using it and i push up a patch and like, I have no process, I have no tests, I have no, it's like, I'm, a, you know, my whole, everything is very sort of sloppy and careless. And I push up some patch that causes like people to lose a lot of money. How do you think that falls into this scope of all of this? So not at the protocol level, but at the, at the tooling level. So something on which smart contracts are being written potentially, or even, you know, let's say I wrote something that lets you easily generate smart contracts for some sort of financial transaction. Right. So I'll just talk like I think this topic is kind of like a broader topic of developer responsibility, company responsibility around their software systems and things like that. Yeah. Uh, more so than like, oh, CFTC and, and derivatives and binary options and things like that. But like sure. in your example of like, and, you know, users losing exchange funds and things like that, I think that gets arbitrated in like court. Right. Like Mount Gox got arbitrated in Japanese court. So that's the consequences of like losing your customer's assets. Like you end up going to court and you probably end up going bankrupt because you have to figure out how to pay everyone back. And what protects a company against that happening to them is good code. Yeah. You know, you're not going to be able to protect against every possible attack. But, you know, after working on our, alerting dashboard and integrating with a bunch of exchanges like we've been able to see like what kinds of bad practices a lot of exchanges engage in and 
they they haven't changed it. Like it continues to be the way it is for months, even though we've called them out and stuff. So I would say that writing, like, I don't know what, like from a legal perspective on writing bad code, I don't know what to think there. I do think like if you're a company or you, you're an exchange, the onus is on you and it should be your prerogative to write good code, to have tests in place, to think about adversarial situations so you don't lose your customers' assets and go to court and go bankrupt, right? So I, th- I think from a like free market type of standpoint with the, some kind of legal jurisdiction, like that makes sense to me. I don't know like how you go about saying like this is bad code that we're going to shut you down. But it's a really, I think it's a really important topic because the more code gets written, the more, uh, you know how there's that term like software is going to eat the world, right? Yeah. Like if that's the case, then bugs are going to eat the universe. Like it's inevitable (laughs) that it's inevitable that software as it, that there's always bugs in software. So if software becomes the predominant mode of anything, there's going to be bugs in that. It's just inevitable. So protecting against that stuff is important. I just don't know, like, like how do you do it legally? I'm not sure. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, making sure, that, like, individual competence and then, like, system-wide, like, good process are, like, the two solutions. And, you know, beyond that, like, you just have to accept there'll be a certain amount of bugs that get through, but you've done everything you can to prevent the, the the most preventable ones. And, you know, as far as individual level competence, there's two approaches there. Like if you look at tech now, it's, you know, we, there isn't that much, it's not that dependent on like professional governing bodies or certification system. And I think part of it is because for a lot of different types of jobs out there, what you do in a given month may actually 12 months later it might be dramatically different it's a lot more fluid you don't have the same sorts of like narrow specialization that you do in other forms of engineering and i'm not saying this for all software development i just mean for a lot of web development and i think a lot of people that are coming into smart contract development are coming from that universe the other thing is just having professional certifications and you know professional governing bodies like doctors and lawyers and other types of engineers do that they set their standards internally and then make sure people are compliant and also dole out the punishments if people are not. And there's obviously pros and cons. Some people don't like that because they say there's gatekeepers and there's pros in that not anyone can just say they're a doctor and kill you. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So the reason I bring that up is because I think for those things to become viable, you need a certain amount of specialization and a certain amount of like practices and patterns that are legitimately transferable across like years if not decades yep. uh and you could argue that you know smart contract writing there's going to be some set of fundamentals especially for financial instruments and the like that will be established and so you may be able to see those solutions be more viable in that space where it's a new you know so you can you can get rid of certain classes of bugs that are introduced just by having incompetent people by you know screening for basic ability and like work quality yep you can screen out certain classes of bugs for you know just by having good process you know maybe you're an amazing coder but if no one ever reviews your code a lot of stuff is going to slip through that would otherwise be caught and we can probably see an order of magnitude reduction in bugs by having a good code review process and like yep. so on and so forth across the stack i think the the one thing that this whole industry is going to be particularly susceptible to as maybe less true in some other disciplines is failures due to some like fundamentally unseen problem. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if you go back to the, I mean, you even see it now, there'll be some, someone will invent some new type of an attack against a given, a given protocol that no one had ever thought of before. Right. And it doesn't matter how good your coders are or your processes, those sorts of vulnerabilities, I think, are going to be pretty common in this space. And so it'll be interesting to see how, how that is dealt with. And yeah, it was just, it was just like a funny anecdote or an uh, interesting anecdote I, ha- I have from one of my... Uh, so I took a material science class, first year of college. And 
basically our, our, you know, the theory of our prof was that the, and a few other people was that the Titanic, well, it sank because it hit an iceberg. Like if it hadn't hit the iceberg, it wouldn't have sank. But certain types of steel that are normally very ductile Mm -hmm. uh, have like a certain relatively narrow temperature range in which they become extremely brittle. And in, you know, 1907 or eight or whenever the, like the Titanic was construction of the Titanic was started and the source and steel, there were two primary methods of, uh, creating steel. There was like the old school open hearth process and then the Bessemer process, which was like relatively new. And that open hearth process created a relatively ductile steel and it was used in shipbuilding. But the Titanic set sail in April where the water temperature was negative two degrees Celsius. Okay. Uh, salt water. So it can, <laughs> right. it can do that. And they've actually, they've actually dug up uh, metal samples of the Titanic and, and, and tested it for its ductile brittle, brittle transition temperature. And they've basically found that it, it, was, it was very high, the point at which it goes from being ductile to being very brittle. And, you know, having examined the wreckage and all, the way that the rivets broke and the way that the, the you know, because it had 16 compartments that were supposed to individually be able to be able to absorb, like getting water is supposed to be unsinkable because it had like 16 separate chambers, mm-hmm. but it hit the iceberg and it essentially, I think six of the chambers were damaged. And so one of the theories is that because engineers at the time had no idea about ductile brittle transition temperature, they did all of this design around steel is relative, like it's a relatively malleable steel. If it hits something, it'll bend. If it ruptures, it'll fill in one of the compartments. We'll still have 15 and we're good to go. They didn't account for, oh, actually at negative two degrees Celsius, the steel that we think is relatively malleable and can thus survive impact mm-hmm. turns incredibly vertical and will shatter like glass. Oh, uh, interesting. And so, yeah, so those sorts of discoveries only ever can happen in the field. They tend to be something very fundamental that like puts everything at risk. Like there was a whole class of ships basically that were relatively susceptible to breaking and sinking in cold water. It's not something you can ship a patch for very easily. Right. <laughs> um, and so I, I think we'll see that in the, we are seeing, we see that in the crypto space and I don't know how people are going to be able to deal with that. So speaking of the Titanic, like how does IOTA rolling their own hash function, for example, play into this kind of like incompetence, negligence type of worldview? That's like not checking if, your like rivets or sound or something. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> that's, just, that's just like, oh, we won't use this standardized process for ri- riveting steel for ships. We're just going to do our own thing and wing it. It looks cool. And it turns out the rivets fail. And should um, they? I mean, we all know who the developers are. They're, you know, they're not pseudonymous or anonymous or anything. They're just uh, like, we know who they are. Do you think that that kind of decision would be like, there should be some legal consequence to them doing that? If there were a uh, governing body for cryptographers, I think that I, from what I've read of what the, you know, like cryptography, not crypto as in cryptography community thinks of rolling your own crypto. I think essentially what they did was malpractice Yep. and would get treated as such. Yep. Hey everyone, this is Vikram again. Thanks for listening to us. If you are an exchange, a trader or working on a crypto project, get in touch with us. You can reach us on Twitter at QuantLayer, that's Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R, or email me at Vikram at QuantLayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M, like Monero, at QuantLayer.com. I will write back. And if you like our podcast so far, please hit subscribe and rate and review us, because that would help us a lot. Thanks. Thanks.